Uh, good to be with you all this evening, you non-football fans, or at least patient sports fans. I'm glad you all are here today. Uh, quick update on score for anyone that's curious. It is ran- I'm just kidding. I don't know. Not looking at the score. For students that are here, middle school and high school, if you want to stick around afterwards, I ordered 20 pizzas, which might be too much, or maybe just enough if you're really hungry, but we will watch the Super Bowl on this screen at 545. Okay, I also have soda for you. Uh, so stick around. We will start the game from the beginning. I tested it. Fingers crossed, internet connection holds up, and we'll do that afterwards. Okay, sound good? Any of you staying? Did I get enough pizzas? Okay, all right, Carol. All right, thanks, Carol. Send some extras with, home with you as well. All right, well, again, good to be with you guys. Um, a lot of you might know this about me, and if not, you're about to find out, but one of my favorite things in life is movies. Did, have, have you, I made this clear from the stage before, or just talking to me. Uh, I have a large enough DVD and Blu-ray collection, yes, people still collect physical media, that two Christmases ago, my dad and I actually had to build custom DVD shelves in my living room to hold my entire collection. It's available for free rentals from anyone who would like it. I have an app that keeps track of who rents stuff from me, so Stump Boys, you guys owe me a movie. Woods, you owe me a movie. You're on that. Um, I'm nerdy enough that I keep a movie journal of every film that I've watched going back about seven years now. If you're curious, I can tell you the day and what I rated it. Uh, I love to play movie trivia games, but often don't get to because people are too scared to play me because they will get dominated. If any of you would like to bring the challenge to me, talk to me after service, and I'd like to schedule a meeting with you for your downfall. But our passage today, I'm bringing this up because it seems like the sort of event that Hollywood would love to turn into an action or Western movie. We have our, our main character, Jesus, who's been away from Jerusalem for several years and is now coming back to pronounce himself as king, not only of the Jews, but of the whole world. He's amassed this huge following that knows he's about to throw down with the Romans occupying their country, the corrupt religious leaders of the day, and Satan himself. So you can almost imagine this movie version where Jesus is decked out in this clean white suit and that wide-brimmed white hat, and he's riding on the most gorgeous white stallion you've ever seen, the biggest thing you've ever seen, as he's coming into town with his disciples and followers leading the charge behind him. And when they ask him, what's the plan of attack? How are we going to do this, Jesus? He just simply says, I got this. And then they, they go into the town. He proceeds down the main street where our evil villain, Lucifer, who's been hanging out at Diablo's bar, decides to come out for the showdown. And the crowds part in the main street as these two titans approach each other. And as Lucifer makes his way to the street, he begins mocking Jesus, saying that the people will never accept him as king. Uh, Jesus simply says, wrong again, Prince of Lies. Now let me do a quick sidebar here because I know you're thinking, Man, if Jordan can come up with movie ideas this good, is he going to leave us for Hollywood? And while I know there would be unbelievable fame and measurable wealth and multiple Oscars in my future, I promise I won't leave you, even though I know this stuff is so good. This dialogue, right? No? Joe? Thanks. All right. Where was I? Wrong again, Prince of Lies. And then without even drawing his ivory six-shooter, Jesus only says, game over. And Lucifer explodes into a cloud of smoke, never to be seen from again. The people celebrate, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus smirks at the camera, gives a wink, and credits roll. 
Huh? That's how Hollywood would make this. There's no post-credits scene, okay? It's done. Jesus did it. We're not setting up the, the MCU here of Jesus movies here. So that's how Hollywood would do it, and that's what the Jews in Jesus's day thought was going to go down when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem to announce himself as king. But has been the case throughout Jesus's ministry, what people expected and wanted to happen was not how Jesus was actually ushering in his kingdom. So let's read about the arrival of the unexpected king in Luke 19, 28 through 44. Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he, that is Jesus, Jesus said these things, the parable of the ten minas from last week, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this arrival for Jesus to Jerusalem has been about a year in the making at this point and is the culmination of a number of factors for Jesus to arrive at this specific time. First, ever since Jesus' transfiguration, which we learned about way back in Luke chapter 9, was that like last fall? I don't remember when that was. Uh, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, Luke 9.51, and things change at that point when he sets his face to Jerusalem. He's been speaking to his disciples that this would be the place that he would be put to death. Jesus tells his disciples several times this has to happen to bring in the kingdom, but they, they don't understand what he's saying. They were ready to fight to keep him alive or thought that he'd pull a Hollywood ending and save himself when the moment came. Second, all Israel knew that it would be in Jerusalem where the, the Messiah would be enthroned as their king. And so the triumphal entry, this is Jesus's presentation of himself to Israel as their Messiah as seen in the fulfillment of prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 14.4. We'll talk about that in a second. So all eyes are on Jerusalem in anticipation of the Messiah, and Jesus here is on his way to Jerusalem. Third, the Passover feast is happening the week that he arrives, which brought many spiritual pilgrims to Jerusalem and, and fueled the spiritual excitement for the Messiah. Israelites from all over would make the journey to Jerusalem for this one week a year for uh, the Day of Atonement, big sacrifices. We even see Jesus' family do this back in Luke 2.41. Every good Jew 
would be in Jerusalem at this time. Fourth, Jesus has been performing a number of miracles which attracted the crowds and really, again, ramps up the messianic enthusiasm. Jesus' fame and popularity had grown tremendously. And for him to be coming to Jerusalem the week of Passover, I mean, that seems like the perfect time for the true king of Israel to announce himself and conquer the enemies of the Jews. So it's hard for us to really understand the mood in that moment in history. They are looking for the Messiah, and Jesus is a very likely candidate with all that's happened in the last three and a half years. So the moment was right. They looked for him, watching him carefully for any indication of his identity. In contrast, the Pharisees and religious leaders were determined that he was not the Messiah and that he would have no opportunity to attempt to be praised by the crowds who would wish that he would be their king. They're determined to kill him, and so they're, they're looking for the right opportunity to do so. These opponents of our Lord feared the crowds, and they wanted to get Jesus out of sight, out of mind. So this morning, we're going to break down uh, the arrangements for the king's arrival in Luke 19, 28 through 34, the joyful reception of the king in verses uh, 35 through 40, and the king's sorrowful indictment in verses 41 through 44. So let, let's start by looking at the arrangements made for the king's arrival. Uh, I'll reread verses 28 through 34 here. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So we, we see the Mount of Olives here come into the story. And this is a hill outside of Jerusalem that plays a huge role in Jesus' last days on earth. According to Zechariah 14.4, we have a prophecy back then that the Messiah was to appear on the Mount of Olives and as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, it would be split in half, forming this great valley. It is here that the triumphal entry of Jesus is staged. During his last week, as we read forward in Luke, going forward in, in, in our series here, we see that Jesus spends his nights at the Mount of Olives. He retreats at night to the Mount of Olives. It also seems to be from the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascends into heaven after the resurrection, according to Acts 1. So Jesus must have paused here on the Mount of Olives before entering Jerusalem, and he sends two of his disciples on ahead to get him a mount. Now, it's not that Jesus needed a ride, because this is just like, you're just like coming down a higher hill to get down into Jerusalem. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Jesus has never ridden another animal in all of Scripture except in this passage, which is fascinating. That dude got his steps in, apparently. Uh, the purpose for riding into Jerusalem on a never-ridden donkey was to fulfill prophecy and to proclaim his identity as Messiah. So this prophecy comes from Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we get this whole paragraph devoted to the details of getting this donkey in all three of the synoptic gospels. That means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
well, why does Luke and the other two Gospels give us this big of a description about finding a donkey? Well, first, as we just read, this is an important fulfillment of prophecy, which Jesus was intent on fulfilling precisely. While Luke doesn't uh, stress this element of fulfilled prophecy as much as Matthew does, this is still a factor. Jesus was identifying himself as Messiah by taking this action on the donkey. Second, the miraculous power of Jesus is shown. Some might think it's a miracle that the animal was even given to the two disciples based on how this, uh, this situation goes down. But Jesus' exact knowledge of the whereabouts of the animal and of the response of the owner shows that our Lord is completely aware of and in control of his environment. The fact that the animal he rode on had never been ridden is probably actually another hidden clue to his deity. In Numbers 19.2 and Deuteronomy 21.3, so back in the Torah and the law, the animals which were to be sacrificed to God were to have not borne a yoke, meaning they weren't supposed to be used for work at all. So the animals carried an idea of purity to them since they had never been used. Well, here we have our sinless, perfect, pure Savior riding on a pure, unridden, unused colt as he makes his way to be the true sacrifice to God the Father for the sins of the people in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. There's something very significant happening here. Third, the fact that the disciples did not first ask to take the colt, but only gave an explanation for their right to take it, I think this shows the Lord's right to make use of anything that man owns. Think of the different ways a previously unridden animal could have been acquired for Jesus. Jesus could have gone and asked to use it himself, right? He could have identified himself as Messiah, explained, hey, I got some certain prophecies I need to fulfill here, and that the use of the owner's animal would be an important role to establishing his kingdom. Or Jesus could have sent his disciples on a similar task to give this background information of once they explained who Jesus was and then asked for the use of the donkey, they surely would have gotten it and given it to him. They could have, of course, promised to bring the animal right back, which apparently they don't do, or even offered to rent or buy it. None of those things happen. Instead, these two disciples, they go into the village, and without previously asking permission, they just start taking a donkey. All this is done in the sight of the animal's owners. So I think we, we call this pretty gutsy by these disciples to do this. This would be like you going across the street to someone's driveway, hopping in their car, and when they come out and say, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs this. Like, that's probably going to be a weird aftermath if you go and do that. By the way, please don't go do that after service. That is not a recommendation. So remember, though, that the two disciples, they're just doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. This is how Jesus said this is going to go down. They were told to locate the animal, to just take it, and to give an explanation only if they're challenged on what they're doing, which they were. I mean, my guess is the owners had an attitude of like, uh, excuse me, what are you guys doing? That's my donkey you're taking there. And the amazing thing to me is that once told the Lord has need of it, the owners apparently say, okay, allow the two disciples to take the colt with no promises being made about its return. And I think the key there is to be found in the word Lord, of saying that the Lord has need of it, which in every account of this story is the same term given. So what did Lord mean to the people of Jerusalem and to these people in particular? Well, I think that the owners understood that the term Lord uh, meant that, the, that this refers to Jesus of Nazareth, who at this point is being called, uh, called this by many people. We saw this in Luke 18 and 19 with 
the blind beggar, and with Zacchaeus, they both refer to Jesus as Lord. This is a title that people know Jesus is taking. The term Lord, based on its Old Testament roots, implies the deity of Jesus and thus his sovereignty over all of creation. The term Lord conveyed to these animal owners that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but God. And so he had every right to possess this cult, whether he ever returned it or not. His same authority, which enabled and empowered him to be in perfect control over this animal, which had never been broken, is the same authority he uses to say, I need this animal. Think about that. This cult had never been ridden. You try to get on an animal that's never been broken, you know what's going to happen? You ever watch the rodeo derbies where they try to buck you off in eight seconds? That's what happens. Apparently this cult's just like, yeah, Jesus, hop on, let's go for a ride. So not only the act of riding this animal into, into Jerusalem, but also the way in which the animal was obtained was a statement by our Lord of his authority. And take note of the fact that his authority, at least in getting the colt, was not used by the Lord directly, but through his disciples who were sent by Jesus in his authority. I think the later implications of this are, are spelled out by Luke in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you're going to go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There's application for us here. Jesus, as the Messiah, has every right to possess what is ultimately his. If Jesus were the Messiah, if he was the divine son of God, why would he lack anything? Why did he even need to borrow this animal? Why did he just miraculously create an animal to ride in on? Maybe like a sweet unicorn or something like that. My daughter would love that. What we see here is consistent, though, with Jesus's first coming. His parents had no place to bear their child other than a borrowed stable. Jesus had no home of his own, according to Luke 9, 58. He had no means of support, Luke 8, 1 through 3. He stayed, as we're going to read in the coming uh, weeks in, these, in Luke, under the stars, Luke 21, 37, on the Mount of Olives. Jesus was even buried in a borrowed tomb. So why did the creator of the earth put himself in need so that he had to borrow what belonged to others? Well, in the first place, Everything already does belong to him, right? In the ultimate sense, the donkey didn't belong to the owners, but to God. They were only stewards of things. So for the Son of God to borrow what belongs to others is really for him to just possess what is already his. As the creator of humanity, our Lord also possesses us. We are his possession to use as he chooses. Do we actually believe that, though? Do we really believe that Jesus possesses all things and that he has the right to lay claim to them, to dictate how they are used at any time. I think that we're far less motivated to let go of things than those who owned this donkey. It's one thing to acknowledge our Savior as Lord, but it's another thing to actually live this way. He's chosen to continue, even to this day, to lay claim on the possessions of humanity. He's not chosen to uh, to carry out his earthly work by supernatural means, but by laying claim on those things which he has placed in the hands of us. So our willingness to release possessions into his hands is a testimony to his lordship. And not just our possessions, but our very lives, our time, our money, our thoughts, that we willingly deny ourselves and take up our cross daily to be used by the kingdom? Or are we more focused on the here and now? in the world and what's around us. We know that when the kingdom of God comes, when the king comes, he will possess his kingdom and all that is in it. No one will be exempt. 
those who have renounced and resisted his will and his ownership, they will resist him no longer. They will acknowledge who he is. His enemies will be defeated and destroyed. And for those of us in this life, call him Lord and submit to his lordship, we will be heirs of everlasting life and have a place in this kingdom. But are we living in light of that truth today? So we see the arrangements made for the arrival of the king. And next we see the joyful reception of the king in verses 35 through 40. Let's reread that. It says, And they brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So a few things to point out from this section. Uh, We know that this incident was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, uh, Zechariah 9.9, we read earlier. Um, And then we also know that the Jews know their Bible, right? They don't have the Bible app on their phone to pull up a hundred different versions or copies of it that like, oh yeah, I have like seven Bibles. I don't even know where my Bible is. They had their Bibles memorized. So Jesus riding on a colt would maybe make people think, oh, is this like happening right now? Is this Zechariah 9.9 being fulfilled? The praises that they're singing are words from Psalm 118, 26 through 29, what our call to worship was this morning. They're saying those exact same words that were penned all those years ago. They are acknowledging Jesus as the king sent from God who will bring salvation. Not everyone in Jerusalem participated in the triumphal entry, though, mainly those who would just be called his disciples. Uh, From all accounts, it, it seems as though there was a great crowd that was present at this, Uh, but many of the people in Jerusalem were not involved. Since it's Passover week, the city has probably dramatically increased in size to as many as 150 to 250,000 people were different commentaries. We're guessing on what it would be. The whole city, Matthew tells us, is stirred up about the arrival of Jesus, but not all were involved. It would seem that the majority of those involved in the celebration were not those from Jerusalem who lived there, but those pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem, either to celebrate the Passover or to follow Jesus, or both. Some of the disciples did regard Jesus' entrance in Jerusalem as the entrance of the Messiah, of Israel's king, but they didn't understand how his kingdom would be instituted or when. Others seem to have regarded Jesus as someone less than this. Maybe it's just he's just a super great prophet at this point. A lot don't know who he was or what was happening if you look at Matthew's account. But you need to understand here, that this moment of Jesus' arrival had been a thousand years in the making in the eyes of the Jews. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that Israel has always desired to have a king. The original plan was for God to be their king and for them to be run as a theocracy with God on the throne. But when the Israelites see that the nations around them have human kings, they ask God for one too. God warns them not to do this because he says a human king is going to fail them. The people persist, so the first king of Israel, Saul, is chosen. Now Saul becomes king not because of his leadership or of his commitment to the Lord, but because he's a head taller than everybody else. This dude was tall. He looks the part of a king. He looks like a warrior, like someone to expand Israel's power and country. Well, spoiler alert, Saul's not a great king. He doesn't follow God. 
He's plagued by jealousy, and he's told that teenager David is actually God's pick for king. Why is David chosen? Not because of his physical prowess, but because David is a man after God's own heart. David is the best king Israel has because David leads the people to worship God, and when he messes up, which he does a lot, David always comes back to the Lord. But just two generations after David, Solomon is his son and becomes king. Solomon's children divide the kingdom, and Israel deals with judgment for their disobedience to God. And ever since then, Israel has been longing for the promised king who will reign on David's throne forever. They are ready for the better warrior than Saul, the wiser king than Solomon, the more committed follower than David. And here he is announcing himself in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, the Messiah, the promised king who will establish Israel as God's nation forever. Their enemies will defeat it and the people experience God's blessing and favor. It's finally happening after 1,000 years. They expected the Hollywood Messiah, but they get something unexpected. Not a king riding on the most powerful horse you've seen with a beautiful saddle and polished armor and a sword sheath that could cut off the heads of giants and an army carrying spears and flags of the coming king. Instead, they get Jesus in a robe, riding on a donkey with blankets for a saddle, no sword in sight, and his army waving cloaks and palm branches. Now you'd think that this would make them understand This Messiah is doing things differently than we had hoped, but they're missing what is right in front of them. Jesus was coming to deliver them and defeat their enemies, but the enemies he's defeating them of is death and sin, and they're delivering them to salvation. It reminds me of the story, you guys probably heard this, of the Christian who's at home praying as a hurricane begins to flood his town. Some neighbors come by in a canoe and say, hop in, the waters are rising fast. The believer says, I'll stay. I have faith that God will deliver me. As the waters rise, the man runs up to the second floor, and a speedboat comes by saying, hurry and get in. The levees are about to break. Again, he responds, I'll keep praying. I know the Lord will save me. Finally, the waters are so high, the man is on his roof. A helicopter flies over him and shouts, grab onto the ladder. This is your last chance. The man says, I know this looks bad, but my faith in God will save me from these waters. Well, the man drowns, as you would expect, And when he enters the pearly gates, he asks God, Lord, I prayed and prayed for you to save me. Why didn't you come? And God responds, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What more did you want from me? Heard that joke? Yeah, very funny one based on the two chuckles. But sometimes the point of that is what we think we need and what God is actually providing are completely different things. Today, there's many of us that still want an authority figure to solve all of our problems. But instead of a king, it's governors and senators and presidents or maybe a pastor who's taken that authority role. Our hope for a successful life comes from our bank accounts and job promotions. Our desire is to be comfortable and safe and hopefully away from the really bad sinners of the world. But is that what God actually wants for us? What he's calling us to? He's calling us to salvation, to recognize we can't save ourselves and to put our trust in him, and to follow wherever he asks us to go and what to do. The unexpected king may ask unexpected things of us, but are we hearing and recognizing what those things are? Another question asked related to this passage is if the triumphal entry, as it might say in your Bible here, 
was in reality a failure, a kind of fiasco. If something only Jesus, if this was something only Jesus really understood, why does Jesus allow it to happen? Really, why does Jesus make it happen? He causes it to happen when they go and get the cult. Why would Jesus have had a hand in such an event would did nothing more than to excite the crowd, but it actually doesn't bring about the kingdom that they're looking for? Well, there's a couple answers to this question. The first is that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to publicly identify himself as the king of Israel, even though, and we might even say in order that, he might be rejected and put to death. Many were wondering who Jesus was. Many wondered if he actually was the Messiah. And his act of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was his way of dramatically and emphatically saying, I am the king of Israel. The second reason why I believe Jesus allowed the triumphal entry was in order to affirm not only his identity as Messiah, and thus his, uh, but also his deity, and thus his right to be worshipped by all people. Just as the owner's protest at the disciples' taking of the donkey was the backdrop, uh, backdrop to Jesus' authority to possess the cult, so the protest of the Pharisees here over the praise of Jesus is the backdrop to his right as God to be praised. The Pharisees, of course, not only rejected Jesus' deity, but also his identity as Messiah. So how then could they allow him to be praised? They insisted that Jesus stop the people from praising him. Jesus refuses. He said that if the people were silenced, the stones themselves would cry out that he is God. Jesus is the Son of God, and all of creation recognizes who he is, even if the Pharisees denied it. He not only deserved praise and worship, this praise and worship cannot be silenced. If you think back to earlier stories in Luke and other parts of the gospel narratives, several times when people try to praise Jesus for a miracle he's performed, he tells them to be quiet and to tell no one. You can probably think of examples and go, why would he do that? Well, why are things different now? It's because now is the final week of his life, the culmination of his purpose, and he is announcing himself as King, Messiah, and God. So he is worthy of the praise that he's receiving, and he also will not silence it, because it is time now for the religious leaders to play their part and put him to death. Remember, Jesus says he willingly gives his life. No one can take it from him. He knows that by allowing himself to be worshipped, he's giving the avenue for the Pharisees to finally kill him. Uh, the parable of the ten minus that, that Josh spoke on last week, it's literally being played out in this arrival. The king is here to establish his kingdom, but these Pharisees and Later in the week, many Jews will join in, and they're saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So what seems like a joyful response to the king kind of takes a turn at the end, and what's even more interesting is Jesus' response to it. So let's look at the king's sorrowful indictment in verses 41 through 44. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When we look at Jesus' response to the triumphal entry, he, he actually sees it as rejection, not as a reception of him as Messiah. 
Just as Jesus could say about those who crucify him a week later, they know not what they were doing, so we see that many in the crowds did not know what they were doing here either. What's an amazing contrast is that we have this joyful reception of Jesus by the crowds with our Lord's tears. They thought that they had received him in such a way that was uh, appropriate and fitting, but Jesus views the event as a disaster and is leading to disaster for Jerusalem. So Jesus is weeping as he's on this donkey, as they're praising him on the way to the city of Jerusalem. Now, we don't see Jesus cry often in Scripture. There are only three recorded times. So once, when he sees the pain and anguish in his friend's face at the death of Lazarus. Even though Jesus knows he's about to bring Lazarus back from the dead, Jesus mourns when we mourn. And the loss of life brings him to grief. We see him cry here, which I'll break down in a second. And we also learn in Hebrews 5-7 that Jesus cried out tears when praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before being crucified, knowing that he's about to take on the sins of the world and experience something he never had before, separation from the Trinity. The reason for his tears here is that Jerusalem has failed to grasp the things which make for peace. As I've, I've talked about, the majority of the people thought that this peace would come being accomplished by a sword and by force. They believed that when the Messiah came, he's going to use military might and that he would throw off the shackles of Rome. When Jesus wept because Jerusalem did not know what would bring about peace, he wept because he knew what lay ahead for this lost, wrong-thinking nation. Instead of the Messiah's coming bringing about the demise of Rome, the rejection of Jesus and Messiah meant the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of Roman soldiers. Jesus weeps because he wants Jerusalem to accept the salvation he brings through the forgiveness of sins, but instead they will choose to reject him and face destruction by the Romans in 70 AD. This actually happens when the city and the temples uh, are destroyed. It was not by the Messiah's use of force and power, nor by the death of the Messiah's enemies that the kingdom was to be brought about, but by the Messiah's death, the hand of his enemies. It was not triumph which would bring in the kingdom, but the tragedy of the cross. God's ways are never man's ways. Man would have brought about the kingdom in many ways, but man would never have considered of doing so by a cross, by apparent defeat, by the suffering of the Messiah himself for the sins of his people. So here then, I think, is a third implication of Jesus' deity in this passage. If Jesus was Lord, that is God, then not only does he have right to man's possessions, right to man's praise and worship, he also has the right to institute his kingdom in the way that he sovereignly chooses, rather than the way man would have this done. The Messiah will come to possess what is his, to receive man's praise, and to bring about the kingdom in his own way. Men seem to suppose that the kingdom would be founded on, on acts of power and might and more miracles. That's what they're praising him for in verse 37. But Jesus was intent on fulfilling the will of the Father and to bring about the kingdom by personal pain, rejection, and suffering. Such is the way of his cross. The triumphal entry then was not only Jesus' claim to be Israel's Messiah, but also a clear declaration of his deity. He was also Israel's Lord. His rights as Lord were therefore affirmed and demonstrated in these verses. All these rights are the rights of one who is not only Israel's Messiah, but also her God. 
This declaration of our Lord's deity and of his rights as Israel's Lord are, are important in the context of Luke because of what's about to be play, taking place. Jesus is about to be rejected by his own people, handed over to the Gentiles, persecuted, abused, and crucified. To some, it might have seemed that Jesus had high hopes which were unrealistic and which failed. To some, the cross may have seemed both a disaster and a defeat. But just prior to his death, Jesus here is declaring his deity and that this must happen to bring about the salvation of the world. All of these things happened under protest, but they could not be stopped. Jesus' death on the cross was not evidence of, Jesus's, of Jesus being overrun or overpowered by his opponents, but of his laying down his life voluntarily for the sins of his people as God's means of establishing his kingdom. How amazing is it that instead of people crying over the coming death of the Messiah, he is crying over their rejection of him. I hope that we have the same heart as Jesus, that we are weeping, crying over, and pleading with our Lord for the salvation of the lost around us. Instead of being like Israel, hoping for the destruction of sinners and enemies around them, let us instead be moved to tears over the need of our families, our friends, our neighbors, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world to be reconciled to the merciful Savior who marched his way to death, not as a warrior king, but as the unexpected humble king of love and peace. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are Lord, and I uh, just want to praise you for who you are for all that you've done, for uh, humbly coming as king, not coming as a warrior, not coming to destroy those who oppose you, which would be all of us, but instead coming as one to uh, give himself up, to sacrifice himself so that we might be made right with the Father. God, I pray that you would help us to um, acknowledge your lordship, that we would not be holding on to uh, our possessions, the things that we have, but that we would be willing and, and uh, ready to give you all that we have, whether it be our things or our time or our money or whatever it is, to help you with the authority that you've given us to, to bring forward your word to the nations. I pray too that we'd be a people constantly praising and worshiping you, that we acknowledge who you are as creator of all things, sovereign over all things, and that that would just be something that goes forward with us in all that we do. We'd always be reminded of your glory of who you are. I pray, too, that we would weep as you would weep for those that are lost around us. Help us, those of us who have put our faith in you, to not take for granted what was done for us. To not be like, well, I'm better off than the sinners around me, but to recognize that we are the same as those sinners in need of salvation and forgiveness. Pray you'd give us a heart for the people around us who are broken and lost. That we would even see uh, our city, Portland, right around the corner, instead of seeing it as a place that is losing you and, and is in too deep and off the, the, the deep end or whatever, but instead we'd see this as a glorious opportunity to provide hope to people who need it so badly. Pray you'd give us opportunities to share your word, that you give us opportunities to be used by you, um, that we would be attuned to the unexpected ways that you are calling us to you. I pray all these things through Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>